we're going to see in Acts chapter 16, Paul setting out on his second missionary journey. If you know, we've, we've already looked at his first missionary journey where he went all the way to Lystra and Derby, and then made his way back to Antioch. Now he's about to be sent out again throughout the Roman Empire and will be on this journey, this second missionary journey for a few weeks. What Acts 16 has in store for us today is the powerful truth that there is one gospel for all. That's the title of the message this morning. We're going to see throughout Acts 16 very different people from very different contexts with very different needs and the good news of the gospel that Jesus has come to save and forgive sinners, meet them all right where they're at. So the reality is there's diversity in this room. There are some of us who, if we kind of took a test uh, in the world's eyes on how life is going, you would say things are great. Uh, You're well-to-do, all of your bills are paid, you're wearing clothes that aren't ratty and torn. You know where all of your meals are coming from. You're doing well. There are others in this room that have difficulties and circumstances that make things harder than the lives of other people. Uh, Then there are people who are really well off and and doing really, really well and really don't never feel uh, any kind of felt needs. Uh, So all of us are on a gradient, right? All of us are in uh, our community, in this culture, in different places, And so I hope and pray that as we read Acts 16 and study this together, we might find ourselves um, seen in that. So so here's what I'll do really quickly. Uh, There's a handful of you students. Uh, Before I read this text, if you guys are sitting in the kind of the overflow seating, if you guys would just find a seat, even if it's not your table, just because in the next few minutes, there's going to be more people who show up and uh, and we want to make sure there's a place for them as well. So if they go find, yeah, yeah, just even if it's a table that isn't yours, that's okay. All right. So we should be in Acts 16. We're going to start in verse 1 and just read the first couple of verses and get things started as we kick off the second missionary journey with the Apostle Paul. This is in verse 1. Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer. But his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. And Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in numbers daily. All right, let's pray before we go any further. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for the gift of your word. And we thank you for this time together that we as the people of God can gather and hear your word and respond. Lord, I know that in this youth ministry, in this group of people, not all of us have professed faith in Christ, even though we all in this room have most likely heard the gospel before. And Lord, that reality is the same one that we will find today in this text. So I pray, whether we are longtime believers or we have never truly confessed our faith in Christ, would today be the day that by the power of your Holy Spirit, the gospel would be plain and clear to us, that we would hear it with unstopped ears, that we would see it with unblinded eyes and respond in faith, faith that is given to us as a gift by your Holy Spirit. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so kind of part one of our, of our text this morning is, is Paul setting out. 
Uh, we're beginning the second missionary journey, which technically began last week at the end of Acts chapter 15, as we learned about Paul joining Silas uh, in verses 40 and 41. But the tour that brings them back to Lystra uh, is where they find Timothy. Now, Timothy is a well-known person in the New Testament. Two letters are written to him. He's mentioned in various letters from Paul. But we learn here he's half Jew, half Greek by ethnicity. He, his mother is Jewish. His father is Greek. But this brother was well-spoken of. He was a believer in Jesus. He had already come to faith. But the fact that he was raised by a Gentile father meant that he would not have been circumcised. He would not have received the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. And you might think if you were here last week that Paul's insistence that Timothy be circumcised is counter to his whole argument from last week. That people do not need to go through the sign of Abraham and come through the law of Moses to get to Jesus. That was the huge deal for the mechanics of salvation in Acts chapter 15. But that's not what's going on here. This move to get Timothy circumcised was for the sake of unity and overcoming any unnecessary hindrances to gospel proclamation. And you see that right there in verse four, or in verse three, they all knew that his father was a Greek. So rather than automatically turn him off because he has not received the covenant sign, Paul asks Timothy to be all things to all people, as Paul himself will say in one of his letters. So this trio sets out. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, carrying with them the letter from the church in Jerusalem that we read about last week, further extending the unity of the church throughout the known world. It says here they were strengthening the churches and the churches were increasing in numbers daily. So here's a quick principle for us. Gospel clarity, clarity on the gospel leads to unity and strength. Gospel clarity leads to unity and strength. Last week and now here, we see that the response of the churches to the uh, judgments of the church in Jerusalem was encouragement and being strengthened. And that's bound to happen when there's a clarity of purpose, a clarity of mission, a clarity of truth. When we all know why we're here and what we're doing, there's clarity and when they have that clarity, there's encouragement. And when we have that, and that encouragement with one another, we're strengthened. But that message needed to keep going. So let's read verse 6 and following. And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, and immediately we sought, immediately we sought to go on into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Okay, here we see something really peculiar. It says that the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus prevented Paul and his companions not from sin, but from going to certain places to share the gospel. I mean, that's kind of an odd thing to hear, that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Jesus is preventing these apostles from going to share Christ with those who have not heard. 
What did that look like? I mean, are they like turning right on the road and this like blinding light shines on them and says no? Like, we don't know. Luke doesn't tell us exactly what the circumstances were. It could have been some kind of special revelation that they received. It could have been just the circumstances of their travel. That looking back, Paul and Silas and Timothy might say, man, that's clearly the Spirit wasn't allowing us to go that direction. The point is that Paul and Luke know that ultimately God is the one who directs their steps. God is the one who allows them to experience whatever comes their way. We also know that God gave Paul a vision to go to Macedonia. So this man saying, come and help us. It's here that Luke joins up with the team. Luke, remember, the writer of Acts. And you see that in verse 10. Uh, It says, and when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go on into Macedonia. So at this point in Troas, Luke joins Paul and Silas and Timothy on this missionary journey. And it's there that the the doctor, the one who is uh, well acquainted with detail, Luke, is now physically present in the writing of this material. So Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Luke are now on their way from Troas to Macedonia. And if I was thinking more clearly, I would put a map up on the screen to show you that we are hundreds of miles away from Antioch. We are all the way on the other side of the Mediterranean Sea, close to Greece and far away from Israel. They're led by the vision of God that God gave to them, a positive experience to go to Macedonia, as well as the doors that God has closed, which we sometimes take as a negative experience. So both the positive experiences of this troop and both the negative experiences of this troop are leading them according to God's sovereign plan. So do not think just because your life is not written in the Bible that God is not any less sovereign or active in your life. The circumstances of your life, just as clearly ruled by God as the ones that we see here with Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke. As we'll see, he is involved in the lives of very different people, bringing all of them to a place where they can hear the gospel and respond. So they set out. They've gone all the way across the Mediterranean Sea, all the way around that that sea. They're moving from Troas to Macedonia, and we will see that they're going to find themselves in Philippi for our next section. And and what we're going to do in the next next three sections of this text is we're going to see who the gospel is for. So if you're taking notes, number two, the gospel is for the wealthy and successful. The gospel is for the wealthy and successful. Let's read about Lydia, verse 16 or verse 11, rather. So setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days and on the Sabbath day, we went outside of the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us saying, 
If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Okay, so eventually the team makes it to Philippi, major city in the Roman Empire, about a thousand miles away from Antioch, according to the route that they took. So this is not a quick journey. This is a long missionary quest. They have gone all the way around the Roman Empire to Philippi. Paul says that they go to find a place of prayer, uh, which is just a stand-in for uh, places where there weren't synagogues. So in the city of Philippi, there seems not to have been a synagogue. There's not a synagogue, which means there's not 10 Jewish families who gather together to pray and worship. If there's not that, then the city can specify a specific location, usually by water, that they would deem a place of prayer. And that's where all of the Jews would go to worship and to pray. So they go there. And among the listeners in that group was a woman named Lydia, a wealthy immigrant from Thyatira. This is a couple dozen miles away from Philippi. But she's made a name for herself by selling purple goods. Now, purple was one of the most expensive and hard to make dyes in the ancient world. That's, that's why pot, it's part of why purple is often understood as a color of royalty, right? You think about what a king or a queen wears in old days, often they would be wearing purple. That's because it's the most rare, it's the most expensive. And so Lydia being a seller of purple goods means she was well off. She was doing very well for herself. Understood as a businesswoman in Philippi, has traveled to the big city for the sake of her business. Lydia, in many respects, had it all. She had made it. She was wealthy. She had a large enough house, as we see, to house at least four grown men on top of her whole family and probably servants as well. But on that day, the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said. She heard the gospel and believed. She realized, maybe for the first time, that physical, material wealth was not going to cure her soul. Prestige in the community is not going to afford her a right relationship with God. Success in this life is not going to make things right forever. So her household also heard the gospel and responded. It says that their, this household was baptized. Those who heard the word believed and were baptized. They wanted to identify as those who had been washed in the blood of Christ. And the spirit immediately begins to bear fruit in this woman's life. And the two things that we see very quickly in Lydia's life are generosity and hospitality. So this woman who has much Wealth in the eyes of the world now has much opportunity to be generous with that wealth. She has a spacious home, and so she invites these men in to care for them. Perhaps the Lord allows some to accrue great amounts of wealth, not for their own sake then, but in order to bless others in need. Exactly what we see with Lydia. That's what we see. And the gospel opened her eyes to that. So the question that leaves all of us with even if we're not materially wealthy, is what kind of treasures and gifts has God blessed you with? And, and who in your life might seem like they have all that they need, but actually desperately need Jesus? Like who is it in your life that if you looked at them, you'd be like, man, there's nothing wrong with them. They have no needs. They've never asked for help. They never, but actually we know if we think about it, they desperately need Jesus. The gospel is for them. Two. 
But not only is the gospel for the wealthy and successful, as we see, number three, the gospel is for the hurting and the broken. The gospel is for the hurting and broken. Not only is the gospel for Lydia, the gospel is for our next character in the text. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us crying out, these men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. We'll stop there. So as they're in Philippi, there's this, there's this girl, most likely your age, who is enslaved, who has masters who own her, And she's also enslaved by, it says here, a spirit of divination. Literally, the Greek says a python spirit. It goes around saying what you and I might read on first read and think that's the truth, that these are servants of the most high God who are proclaiming the way of salvation. But in their context, a Gentile Greek Context, the most high God would have been heard by Jews as Yahweh, but have been heard by Gentiles as Zeus. So like Satan and other demons, this girl's words were distorting and confusing the truth. And what she was doing under the possession of this python spirit, this spirit of divination, was not exalting the glory of God. It was mocking him. On top of that, she was being used for greedy gain. It says that she had been given this spirit in some way, and it was leading to great gain on the account of her masters, that somehow this spirit was able to exercise some kind of divination, give some kind of fortune telling or something like that, some kind of demonic supernatural knowledge. And so this girl was in bondage. She was in the bondage of sin. She was in the bondage of demonic possession. She was in the bondage of being enslaved. And we can only imagine what that's like to feel so out of control, to feel like down is up, and to see that those who are supposed to care for you are using you for their own benefit. So if Lydia is on one side of the spectrum of need, This girl is on the other side. She is not independent, not free, not well, and in desperate need. And it is so encouraging to me personally, it says Paul was greatly annoyed. (laughs) Like, praise God that there's somehow an option for me also to experience that, right? But why was he annoyed? He was annoyed because God was being mocked. He was annoyed because the clarity of the gospel was being muddied by the mockery of this demon-possessed girl. 
So his annoyance was not at her. Like his frustration was not at this person in need, not at this person who's broken, not at this person who has, feels hopeless and lost. He's annoyed at the confusion surrounding his message. And because of that, he speaks a clarifying word. This demon-possessed girl has been saying, they're servants of the most high God. They're servants of the most high God. These are servants of the most high God. And Paul says, and in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. That should clue us in to who Paul thinks is the most high God. It's Jesus. And in his name and by his authority and power, this spirit left her immediately. The text says at that very hour, that's a colloquial phrase to say that instant it happened. Now, like this slave girl, some of us in seasons that might be short or long may feel hopeless and lost, out of control, anxious about life. We may know people who are in this kind of season of life. But here's the truth. I don't think that that slave girl would have known on her own that Jesus was the answer to her brokenness. She may have heard stories about Jews in her town, but what it took in that moment was for someone to proclaim the gospel to her, for her to hear it, and then for the Lord to move in her life. Remember, this has been going on for days. So for days, this slave girl has been listening to Paul and Silas and Timothy preaching and proclaiming the gospel. She has heard this word. She understands the truth. But it requires the Lord to move in her life. And the good news is that the Lord is still moving. There is hope in no other place or person than Jesus. And for those of us who believe that gospel, we have the great and wonderful opportunity to go into the darkness and proclaim that the light of the world has come. It may lead to some hardships. It may lead to some changes, as we'll see in just a moment, but it's worth it. The owners, however, were not rejoicing at the power of God on display. Let's keep reading verse 19. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, which, pause, is precisely not what is going on. And yet they needed something to, to hook these magistrates into doing something. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. And we could say a lot about this exchange. But the major point is that faithfulness to Jesus will be costly. And yet, 
even here, even in the inner prison in a place a thousand miles from home with your feet in the stocks, even here. Don't think that God has forsaken you. That's not what Paul and Silas think. And as we will see, God was still leading and directing their steps to be right where they needed to be for God's glory to be on display and for his gospel to reach those who are ready to hear it. Let's keep reading, verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke, and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Fourth point. The gospel is for the wealthy and successful. The gospel is for the hurting and broken. Number four, the gospel is for those who are normal and average. But you may not think about this, but when you think about this Philippian jailer, he's a common citizen. He's a government employee. Like he's, like a guy, he's like the guy working at the post office. Like he, he's middle class. He obviously has a family, as we'll read about in just a little bit. He's not made a great name for himself, but he's, he's doing okay. He's right there in the middle of normal and average, any way you slice it, in the life of the city of Philippi. But Paul and Silas are the ones in jail, right? Timothy and Luke have escaped this because they have Gentile backgrounds, and so they weren't able to be called out as Jews. To Paul and Silas in jail, and yet in this terrible circumstance, we find Paul and Silas singing to the Lord. They're praying. They're sorrowful, yet rejoicing. They're persecuted, but not abandoned. They're struck down, but not destroyed. And then the Lord shows up. And this miraculous earthquake leads to the gospel going forth in power. Earthquakes, often in scripture, related to divine activity, right? Jesus on the cross, there's an earthquake. Jesus at his resurrection, there's an earthquake. Acts chapter four, when the spirit fills the believers to boldly proclaim the gospel, there's an earthquake. So when we read about in the book of Acts, here in Acts 16, that an earthquake happens, we should have that awareness that God is up to something. He's doing something here. The jailer thinks that life is over. Now, why does he think that? Because although he's a common, ordinary citizen, government employee, Roman jailer, his responsibility is for the prisoners. And if the prisoners go, the debt that they incurred now falls on his head. And so he knows that the sentence from the Roman Empire of losing a jail full of prisoners is going to be death and probably not swift death. And so this jailer thinks his life is over. He thinks the work of God has led to his destruction. And in the middle of the night, in the middle of the darkness, he draws his sword to end his own life. He thinks, this is it. This is all there is. I might as well be done with it now. 
The jailer was afraid for his own life. But at Paul's encouragement, the jailer's fear is not dissolved. It's redirected. It's placed somewhere different. He now knows that what they've been singing about all night, or rather who they've been singing about and who they've been singing to, is real. He is God. And the hope of life instead of death comes into this prison. I think it's just this beautiful picture. I mean, you think about the setting of what's going on here. If you could just like imagine with me for a moment, it's the middle of the night. It's the middle of the dark. You've been hearing this word. You fall asleep. You wake up. You realize that all is lost. At least it seems to be lost. And you're about to kill yourself. You are as good as dead. And you hear a word. And that word leads you to call for the lights. That's what Luke says he does. Calling for the lights. Verse 29. And rushed in and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And in that light, in response to that word, and in the context of hearing the worship of the one true God, he responds, sirs, what must I do to be saved? And probably in a less dramatic way, that is, for those of us who are believers, all of our testimonies. We were in the dark, as good as dead. And then a word came, the lights were turned on, and life was given. Let's keep reading, verse 31. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. The gospel, like with Lydia, bears fruit immediately in this man's life. His household hears the gospel and believes. He, he and his family are baptized and he shows compassion to these prisoners who have led him to Christ by washing their wounds, by hosting them in his home, and by feeding them. And you notice what else is present in this jailer's life and in the life of his family. Joy. They rejoiced that he had believed in God. Let's conclude our time. We don't have a lot of time left. Last couple of verses. Verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, let those men go. And the jailer reported those words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly, uncondemned, men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia 
And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. All right, two quick points to make here. First, as we've seen all morning, the gospel really is for all. It's for those who are doing well. It's for those who are doing awful and for everyone in between. The jailer, the slave girl, and Lydia probably still had things going on in their life that the gospel didn't immediately give them ultimately satisfying answers for why things were happening the way that they were happening. Just as Paul and Silas probably were still wondering in this, in this moment, man, why couldn't we go to Asia? Why couldn't we go to Bithynia? I, I knew that if we would go there, there's so much opportunity there. Why, why does it seem as though God doesn't want us to go there? Believing the gospel does not mean all of your questions are going to be immediately answered in this kind of fantastical way. But it does lead to peace. It does lead to joy. It does lead to rest. It does lead to bearing the fruit of the Spirit of God. And the good news of this chapter and the good news of the whole Bible is that no one is too far gone in any of these directions to hear a word from the Lord that can meet them right where they are. Second, God is sovereign over all things. He is in control of your life. And it may seem great right now. Like your life may seem awesome or it may seem absolutely awful. Your life could be shrouded in hardship and difficulty and mystery and unknowns and and pain and suffering and sorrow. It could be surrounded in victories and achievements and joys and accolades and friendships and, and happiness and excitement. For most of us, it's probably a blend of those things. No matter who you are, God is there. And this text is telling us Jesus is for you. His people are here to be an encouragement to you. His church is here to help walk alongside you. So let's pray and then spend some time considering this gospel and this truth that God really is active and involved in your life. Not like a generic, like in our lives. No, like in your life. He's active in your life. He is sovereign over your life. And why is he sovereign? What is he after? What will be accomplished by his sovereign hand? Supremely, it will be his glory. Because you are not the main character of your life. He is. And yet, he is sovereign for your good. He is sovereign for his glory He is sovereign for your good. There are times where those two things seem as far away from each other as the east is from the west. But the reality is they are one and the same.